Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live in Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for helping to make this class happen. Hi, everybody. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? I'm glad to say that I'm standing strong. I'm just going to keep one of these in hand in case I stumble. Um, okay, this is what I would like to do today. Last week, we, we got a good look at Amsterdam through the lens of Menashe ben, Rabbi Menashe ben Israel. By the way, the recording failed last week. I really apologize that the batteries were not on. Uh, there's a rumor going around that somebody might have recorded the class. So if anyone did happen to record the class, he's not in the room right now. Okay. So, so should you happen to know who that someone is, if you could have them speak to me, I would really appreciate it, because Kaval, it's, it's a shame to lose it. Um, okay, so, but, but, so right now, we're going to put Amsterdam on the sort of uh, northwestern edge of our story, so to speak. I want to place a finger really in the year 1948, and, and push on it a little bit. Sorry, 1648, 1948, 1648, so we've spoken about this before, but um, in 1648, uh, which is going to be a, a critical year in our story, we'll look at a little bit in Central Europe and then in, in Eastern Europe, um, then once we're done with that, it will send, depends on how long it takes, we're going to at the very least, I hope, introduce the story of Shabtai Tzvi, which really flows out of a lot of what we're dealing with. Let's just remember that the overarching theme that is occupying us right now is the tension between tradition and modernity, right? We saw in the person of Oriol de Costa this sense of an irreconcilable differences, right? That, that in, in order to actually live his identity as a Jew, as a converso, but actually live within traditional rabbinic-dominated Jewish society, he was unable to hold both things and therefore ended up actually tragically taking his own life. We saw last week Menashe ben Israel, who also came from this um, sort of converso background where he wasn't um, raised within the folds of the Torah, right? But he took to rabbinic knowledge like a fish to water, unlike Uriel de Costa. However, he also had to reconcile in some way the challenges of a much larger world, of modernity, of knowledge, of all the things that we've listed. I'm not going to go over them all. What was his, not, if not solution, what allowed him to negotiate that tension successfully? Anybody? I didn't know if I, I don't know if I actually said it explicitly. It was, it was a sense of imminent redemption, messianism. It's something, by the way, should be taken to heart today. As Avram and I were talking about in the uh, way down to class, it's often missed that one of the ways in which at least Israeli Jews, religious Jews, are able to negotiate the tension between a rich religious life and a deep engagement in modernity is a sense that, well, it's, it's almost over. Like, we're almost there. There's a, there's a coming world which will smooth over a lot of the edges and resolve a lot of the difficulties, as opposed to my experience of American religious Jewry who live a much more compartmentalized life, which is its own strategy. I'm not saying sort of like, you know, good or bad on either. It's just important to understand that the basic strategies for negotiating a tension between traditional religiosity and the challenges that modernity poses haven't gone away. And, and also, I would point out, what hasn't been offered is, it, is an actual new way of being. 
That, if we ever get to Rob Cook, we'll speak about. Um, OK, so, so we're going to look at 19, 1640, 1648. Right. So 1648, um, if we go back to, to Central Europe, speaking about the German states, where do we leave? That 1648 is the end of the Thirty Years' War. And I keep saying this, that we're not really going to go forward there. We're really going to pick up again with the emergence of the court Jews and what's familiar to people as enlightened absolutism in the late, sorry, late 17th, early 18th century. We'll pick that up when we catch the thread that leads us to Moses Mendelssohn and the Jewish enlightenment that people are probably most familiar with. But I, there's a critical occurrence and there's a general understanding of the world that comes out of the end of the Thirty Years' War, and that's the, um, the Treaty of Westphalia. The Treaty of Westphalia is the way in which all the warring German states and plus all the other participants from northern and central Europe managed to draw lines of peace. But the critical element for us that comes out of it is a shift from, of the primary social identity from religion to nationality. If you recall, the previous sort of modus operandi in the German states was as is the prince, so are the people. Right? If the prince was Catholic, it was a Catholic principality. If the prince was Protestant, so it was a Protestant principality. And that meant that there was a lot of religious persecution. What comes out of Westphalia is the recognition is that we will never resolve that. And it goes together with these trends that we spoke briefly about of a general skepticism and the rise of raison d'etat, the, uh, the, the, the sort of purpose of the state as a source of sovereignty as opposed to theology. Right? We're no longer in the realm of divine right monarchy. We're in the realm of either Machiavelli, just pure power politics, or what will be known as the, um, a, one of the great products of the Enlightenment, which is the uh, sort of constitutional or contractarian thinking of the social contract, that somehow there is an obligation on behalf of the sovereign towards society. But for our purposes, Westphalia now, by shifting the primary social identity from religion to nationality, the question is, what to do with the Jews? Right? The, the, what we know is the Jewish question in modernity, really, it, it doesn't quite come up at Westphalia, but it's born there. Because in the religious conception of Europe, the Jews had a place. It wasn't a happy place, necessarily, <laughs> but it was a place they were conceived of. They were politically serfs of the, of the crown, Right? They existed outside of the feudal system in that sense, but they were directly serfs of the crown or of the local power. It wasn't always the king, per se. Right? So therefore, they had a political place. And religiously, they were a, um, a corporate community. They existed as an entity separate from Christian society, which made sense. You had Protestants, Catholics, Jews. Now, obviously, they had different status in society, but now, if you're going to tell me that Protestant, Catholic, we're all citizens of Austria. What about the Jews? Right? You can't, the, the old model of corporate existence is starting to break up because you don't apply it to the Christians anymore, not to Protestant, not to Catholic. But you're certainly not going to give the Jews full citizenships and make them equal. So you see that the Jewish question, which is what do you do with the Jews? How do they fit in modernity? arises really from the social and political developments that have a turning point at Westphalia. It's a turning point. Westphalia is really the beginning of the birth of the secular nation state in which the Jews to this day have not really found a satisfactory place. Just look at America. Um, and that's the best. 
of the options. Um, it's born there conceptually, but really for Europe, it'll reach its full form post-World War One. If people are familiar with like the Wilsonian doctrine of uh, national uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? National rights, we'll just call it. Um, there's a word, self-determination, self thank you, that's what I was looking for. National self-determination, excellent. This guy that teaches this stuff, right? And then for the rest of the world, World War, post-World War II, in the break of the colonial structures, right, where, where it becomes, to this point, the nation state is, is considered to be um, not only the definitive characteristic of national life, but it is, it is um, the absolutely necessary precursor, hence, the problems in the Middle East. And just think about it. If one didn't assume that a nation, by definition, must have a nation state, a lot of the identity battles that are being fought in this region would look very different. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we'll get to this stuff. It's very big, but I just want you to know that the, the Jewish question as a theoretical question, as a political question, tied to the birth of the secular nation state, really begins at Westphalia in 1648, when Central Europe decided that, that the primary social identity will be national and not religious, and then they realize, oops, what do we do with the Jews? Yeah. These questions don't go away. The Jews are a problematic element in culture in general. Yeah, Chuck. For sure, there were definitely uh, amongst the, I would say, the philosophes, like the early sort of like um, skeptics, soon to be deists and then atheists, who saw religion as essentially a negative force backwards, et cetera, within society. There were those who had a more philosophical tolerant attitude toward the Jews, um, but they were the vast minority. Because as we'll see, if we ever get to the Enlightenment, uh, a philosophe doesn't mean a philo-Semite, just look at Voltaire. Um, like, and, and so, meaning, Jew, the hatred of the Jews is, is an irrational factor in history. But, so, yeah? It's coming back then, so although they were not focusing on nationality, the religious element still remains the backdrop for centuries to be part of the situation. Uh, that's a more complex discussion we'll have. I would say that, that the religious element doesn't go away in society. Even today, it still plays a major role. I mean, look what's happening in American politics. You know, um, and Europe less so, but, uh, but they've had another 500 years of beating each other over religion, um, thousand years. But, but um, it's more complex than that because I just want you to understand the piece that going forward. This is what I want you to take is that as soon as you have the beginnings of a secular nation state, membership in which is defined as what we now know as citizenship, Right, it's a bit of an anachronism. I mean, citizenship, of course, is a concept that belongs to the Greek philosophers in, in classic you know, Hellenic culture. It's adopted by Europe in its attempt to find a model of, of relationship between the individual and the state, no, a model which transcends religion, that will allow a Protestant and a Catholic to both be, both be German. So it's, as we say, it's mivukash. It immediately comes up, what about the Jews? And now, your instinctive desire not to solve the problem might be, a re might be a residue of your religious hatred. Or you might actually hate Christianity, which is many of them will come to hate Christianity and reject it as a culture. But then you, you're still not going to be happy with the Jews. Why? Well, they look different. 
They act different. And, and, and there's a, a phobia, which is just an irrational element in the same way, like today, you know, many LGBTQ people will tell you that no matter how sort of um, vocally, intellectually accepting societies are, there is a phobia that many people just simply like can't explain in rational terms, right? There's a deep embedded, we can hypothesize about it all we want, but I'm not gonna do it right now. But it's, I would not attribute it purely to the religion. The key is, is as soon as you create a society based on citizenship and not on religion, the Jewish question emerges, because what do we do with the Jews? They don't fit that model right now. Yeah, I mean. Well, that's why I said that, that, well, that's why I said Westphalia is the beginning of the evolution of the secular state. And even, even in America, there's no such thing as a truly secular state. You can have a separation between religion and state, like you have in America, but America is a Christian society. And, and Europe was all the more so. So, so well, this is a discussion I want to table and, and yeah. Yeah. Well, to say that the Jews can never be secular is a particular perspective on the question, which if we ever get to the, the sort of full-scale modernity, we'll see that actually the Jews themselves wanted desperately so, right? And, and modernity tried to strike a deal, which is that the price of entry into modern culture was to leave your, leave your own private culture behind. And that didn't work. And then we'll see that there's an attempt to create a religion, which is Jews of, you know, people, Germans of the mosaic persuasion, right? And we'll talk about these things. We're, we're far afield right now, but I just want you to know 1948 is very is significant in the beginning, 1648. So that's really just trying to make sure you guys are paying attention, right? It's very significant because it's the beginning of a process which, as you pointed out, is, is alive and well today. And that gets away from the tribalism, Well, I don't know that it gets away from tribalism. Yeah. Religion may be different, your language may be different, but the people from elsewhere who are Jews are foreign. Yeah, yes, I, I would say... I, the United States where everybody comes from different countries, both Germany... The relationship between nationalism and tribalism is a discussion that deserves its own time because cause it, 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 there's a complex interaction there. Um, whoa, 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 I'm getting hit from all sides here. Right now, a relationship between the individual and the state, which is not negotiated by religion, but rather by politics. Move on. Yeah, yeah. Let's get focused here. So, thank you. So, the the emergence of this secular state. I just want to again lay the foundations for where we're going to go next, because the year is quite important. A few things will emerge. First of all, the deconstruction of the estates, which were a product of feudalism, right? Meaning the clergy, serfdom, the guilds, nobility, right? There's a highly structured society which begins to dissolve, and it, the question is, where do the Jews now fit? Number one. Number two, divine right and custom are no longer looked to. Again, this is a process, not immediate as the source of legitimacy for political authority. So what will replace that is this sense of 
contract, social contract, or the more amorphous raison d'etat, right? The purpose of the state is the state itself. And what we're going to see is, despite the fact that today um, we associate knowledge and enlightenment with egalitarian democracy, that actually enlightened despotism was its original product. Because knowledge is still an elitist pursuit. And I want you to remember that. Because the Jews are going to play a very strange role in the dispersion of knowledge within growing secular European society. This is all important because when we talk about Spinoza, you're going to see that there, there's a very important role that the Jews play here. Um, last but certainly not least, um, I just want to understand a certain progression of the world, which I would call from conquest to tribute to taxation to advertising. <laughs> right? Western culture must expand in order to survive. It's socio, I wouldn't say culture, it's socioeconomic structure. The culture is something perhaps, perhaps different, right? It must expand in order to survive. Originally, conquest, Alexander, you know, breaks out of the peninsula of Greece and conquers the world. He's, by the way, what's he headed for out there in the east? The legendary gold of Babylon, meaning he's just looking to conquer. The Romans, or the, Hellenic, the Hellenistic kingdoms that emerge from that and the Romans after them, create a system of tribute, which is that once I've beaten you, it's not enough just to beat you once. Now I have to make sure I get my due every year. What's the difference between tribute and taxation? Is it the emergence of a relationship between conqueror and conquered? Tribute is protection money. You pay it, or I'm going to burn your shop down. Taxation is somehow a, a, a contractual or semi-formal contractual relationship that, that in return for some contribution, you receive some social good. Roads, you know, hygiene, water. What, what did the Romans ever do for us? Right? Oh, they built the roads and the aqueducts, et cetera. Right? So, but, but then why do I say concus tribute taxation advertising? Because if you look at the way in which the socioeconomic structure of the West has continued to expand, it no longer seeks to assert its power through political rule. America is not looking to rule China. They're looking to overwhelm their markets. Right? That's done, and that's why I said Western culture is a confusing relationship to its socioeconomic structure. That's done through cultural conquest. This process is going to be the context in which the Jews will both physically spread throughout the world. They're going to play a very important cultural role in the shift toward, I mean, originally the legitimacy for this act is religious. Right? The Catholic Church conquers South America in order to bring God to the heathen. And the fact that we made some money on the side, of course, doesn't hurt. Right? It's the, it's the religious justification. As religion falls away, what becomes the justification? Money. You gotta make a living, and money, and of course this technology and a sense that though religion is no longer really the justification, or no longer nominally justification, the superiority of Western culture is the justification, right? We're not bringing God to the heathen anymore. We're bringing technology and enlightenment to the ignorant, which is functionally, of course, the same thing. It will, both of which have very bad implications for the Jews who are colonized people living in the heart of your European society. Let's not forget that. The act of colonizing the Jewish people happened in late antiquity. And we remained 
a colonized people within European culture, one could argue, to this very day. Right? And so the Jews are going to play a very interesting role. just want you to appreciate the arc, because once Europe decides that the nation-state is the ultimate expression of political will, what do they have to do? Get, get rid of the Jew. And the birth of the nation-state is the absolute standard for national self-determination in the world is bound up with the expulsion of the Jew from the heart of Europe. But you appreciate the arc of this because we're at a very important... The, the birth of the nation-state as the absolute vehicle for political self-determination is bound up with the expulsion or destruction of the Jews from the heart of Europe. When the smoke clears from World War II, it's all nation-states. Well, the Soviet Union is a, is a notable exception there. But it is functionally a nation-state. Um, so I want you to appreciate that 1648, to go back to my point, is, is an inflection point in that process. Right? But the Jews don't see it coming. Who could? The, qu the question that emerges together with the birth of the secular nation state for the Jews, there are many questions, but for us is the Jewish question. Oh, who wanted to give the final solution to the Jewish question? Oh, right, which was the, after which you finally had the nation state as the defining structure. And the Jews are no longer there, in Europe at least. But what else emerges? A Jewish nation state. Yeah, guys, please, let's remember to turn off the phones. So, so I just wanted to give you an appreciation, even though I kept saying 1948 by an accident, that there's a direct relationship between 1648 and 1948, aside from the fun coincidence of having the last, same last two numbers and the first one as well. All right. So, okay. That's just um, to give some weight to 1648. There's another very important event which happens in 1648, moving out of Central and Western Europe back east, so to speak. Let's remember that, that um, the Jews at this point, the center of gravity of European Jewry, and really more or less of world Jewry at this point, is in what we think of today as Poland, Ukraine, um, you know, white Russia. Right? It, it, it's important to understand that through the 16th and 17th century, by and large, Europe was declining in its population, but not the Jews. The Jews were growing. In 1500, they were less than half a percent of the Polish population. By mid-17th century, they're two and a half percent. That's a huge leap. It's a five-fold increase. Right? Uh, why that is, is a big debate amongst historians. No one has a good answer. All you could say is that Poland was good for the Jews. I mean, on some level, you have to say it was, it was good for the Jews. I know we not, may not be familiar with that perspective, but it's really true right up until it wasn't. Um, so almost three-quarters of those Jews live in a north-south belt in, in, from Lithuania in the north down through Belarusia to the Ukraine and what's known as Ruthenia. Right? There's a, there, a lot of which will be adopted ultimately into what's called the Pale of Settlement once Poland disappears from the pages of world history. Right? But why are they there? Because those are the lands that were opened to settlement in the second half of the 16th century as Poland and Lithuania began to form a unified state. And the Jews were the colonists of the Polish state. This is critical to understand for what's going to unfold. The Jews were the colonists of the Polish state. They were tinkers and tailors, innkeepers, pawnbrokers. And the real backbone, though, of Jewish economy in this area, anybody know what it was? Yes. Not just the trade, the, the right to distill and sell. The right to distill and sell. So, I mean, just picture how this is going to play out. Because what you have is the Poles are Catholic conquerors who come in and divide up this region into huge estates, 
but they're not interested in living on these huge estates. They're interested in making money off of them. So as we mentioned before, who manages these estates? The Jews. And now, functionally speaking, the, the, um, the phrase for that is an arenda. Uh, arenda, which somebody pointed out might be a derivative of a French word, which wouldn't surprise me for the Polish nobility, right? is, a, is the technical term at the time for the lease of either farmland, mill, hunting, fishing, right? at least of any right which was owned by the, the nobility, you could lease that right. Why would they lease it to you? For cash. But then what do you have to do? You got to get the money out of it. So you create a system in which the Poles would lease either physically the lands as farmlands, because the grain trade from Poland and Lithuania, Lithuania was a major force in the economics of Europe at this point, or you're going to turn that grain into alcohol and sell it in the inns, or you might have the rights to raise taxes or you know, fill in the blank. The problem is, is that, that um, these arendators, I'm sure that the emphasis is the wrong place there, but that's what they're called, arendators, right, um, are, are now forced into a position of exploitation vis-a-vis -vis the Greek Orthodox Ukrainians, Ukrainian is a bit of an uh, anachronism, but the Greek Orthodox population in this region. The Poles are Catholics. They live back in Krakow, Warsaw, etc. The Jews are Jews, right? They are living on the lands there because that's how you manage, right? Many of them are in deep debt because they're given these leases and in, in uh, uh, you know, generally unfavorable terms. So therefore, in order to either make a lot of money, because let's face it, the Jews, many of them were just interested in exploitation, but or to save themselves from, from the debt that they've accrued, they have to soak the Greek Orthodox population for everything they're worth. So you get this situation, and by the way, it was massive, and the, the lands around Ostrog, which is one family of Poles who own the lands around Ostrog, my research said that there were 4,000 Jewish arrenders. Because it wasn't just who held the lease. I might hold a lease and I have three subleases. I hold a lease on this land, I sublease this guy to make the liquor, and this guy controls the fishing, and that guy in the forestry. You understand? So you're gonna have leases and subleases and subleases, which means at every level there's less profit, which means who's gonna pay the real price? The average Ukrainian peasant. Because if I have three levels of leaseholder above me, I, get, I have to make enough money to pay each of them what I owe them, plus have enough to live. And the only place I can get that is out of this Ukrainian peasant. You can see where this is going. Right? Half of the time I do by getting him drunk, charging him, meaning exploiting him to buy the grain that he grows, charging him to buy the alcohol that he then drinks, and showing up with the prince's backing to collect the taxes that he doesn't want to pay the next morning when he's hungover. This is just not going to end well. Right? And, and it, so this system makes the Jews the face of oppression, so much so that the word Jew and arender become almost interchangeable in the countryside. So in 1648, the system explodes. It had been going on for that point, you know, about half a century. Yeah? Listen, Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. There are plenty of Jews who are looking to get rich. And it's a great way to do it. Sure, why not? Why not? I mean, you have total power. You have total power. All you have is these peasants. 
you have total power. Furthermore, you have a culture, let's face it, that looks at them as goyim, and there's a long tradition in Jewish, uh, that see, in Jewish tradition that doesn't actually even see them as fully human. So why, why wouldn't you exploit them? Now, granted, there are many other voices that speak about it as immoral, or at least bad tactics, right? right? So I'm not, it's not a unified. My point is, is, I'm sure there were good Jews and bad Jews. This is part of my mission, I just want to point out, is that, is that the Jews really, in this respect, are just like everybody else. More so, because the pressures of society mean that the bad Jews are really bad, and the good Jews are really good. And, and they are certainly not innocent of the situation that's going on here. You could say that they didn't have any other choice because they were forced into it by socioeconomic circumstances, which I might agree with you, but I've never been a fan of saying, uh, of accepting that argument that you were just following orders as excusing your moral culpability for your actions. No, but, but I know it's not exactly a fair, fair comparison, but you hopefully do see the parallel. True, but there's a difference between lending money at 8% and at 30%. You know what the difference is? Do you care about the human being that you're lending to? And there were Jews that lent at 8% and there were Jews that lent at 30 I don't want to have this conversation right now. I want you guys to understand that the economic situation was explosive and to, and to pretend that the Jews were victims of the Poles is not enough of the story. To pretend that the Jews were ruthless exploiters is also not enough of the story. They were both. And by the way, that's the way the middleman always is. It's a classic anti-Semitic position. By the by, a lot of people look at the state of Israel in the same way. The United States is seeking to maintain its power over the Middle East, and you know what its true agent in that is? The Jews. But you know who the Arabs look at as, as the real evil in this situation? America, but they can't reach them. So who they really hate? The Jews. It's, a, it's something that, by the way, you see already in 1956, people, the international community, were warning Ben-Gurion and the leadership of Israel, like, you don't really want to recreate this situation. Um, either way, in 1647, actually, um, the, the lid that had been welded onto the pot bursts open, and what began as a tax revolt really becomes uh, a full-scale rebellion um, led by an individual named Bogdan Helmin—I can't even say his name—Helminitsky. Helminitsky. It's, you know, it's one of those unpronounceable consonants, right? Now. If you look into your Ukrainian history, he's a great national hero. Statue of him in Kiev because he liberated the Ukrainians. Okay, there you go. Right, he liberated the Ukrainians from the Polish oppressor. And I want to tell you, that's true. If you look into Jewish history, he's one of the greatest slaughters of Jews. He's basically the greatest slaughter of Jews between Spain and the Holocaust. And you know what? That's true. And this is precisely my point, right? Is that, that there's no way to tell this story without holding both of those as true. The Ukrainians were trying to liberate themselves from the Poles. Is that good, bad? I don't know. I don't have a dog in that fight. But I'll tell you this. They couldn't reach the Poles because the Poles were all in Poland. Who could they reach? The Jews. The Jews, and by the way, a lot of Polish clergy as well, because we were out there working amongst the heathen, because they did see the Greek Orthodox as, as the heathen, right? Um, and, and, and so this uprising, it was unique, by the way, because Chmielnitsky's genius was um, that he managed to actually unite the Ukrainians' Cossacks with the Muslim Tartars, which meant that he had not only infantry, he had cavalry. 
I don't get too much into this sort of like a, the sociocultural complexities of the Ukraine, but he was the first to be able to basically unite the tribes, which is a trope throughout human history, going certainly at least back to Muhammad. If not, until the Hun comes in for him. I mean, there's a whole trope. If you can unite the tribes, you'll take over the world. Anybody ever read Dune? Right? That's, like, that's, that, that's, what, that's the, the theme he's working on there. If you haven't read it, it's worth reading. But, but he manages to unite the tribes, decides to throw out the Poles, but since the Poles are actually still in Poland, what he really does is he, take it out, he takes it out on the Jews, and any Poles, Polish troops and clergy he can get his hands on. Um, now, Jewish chronicles of the time, we'll speak a little bit, well, maybe we'll start there. The, the, the primary, no, I'll go, I'll go with the flow I had. The Jewish chronicles of the time speak about 100,000 dead, and 300 communities totally erased. If you, it's called Gzerot Tach Vitat, if people are familiar with it, because the um, Hebrew years were 5408 and 5409, Tach being five, you know, the, 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 the four and the eight there, um, and, and Tat being the four and the nine. Um, the Pinkas Medinat Lita, right? The, these, many of these communities had um, communal registers, says the following, the blow struck at the hole of the house of Israel when the hand of God went out against us and many of the myriads of Israel fell. They were strewn over the fields as prey for the birds of heaven and were not even buried. Right? Or another one that it mentions that the Council of Lithuania, which was at that point independent of the Council of Four Lands, but nevertheless had a, an equal status, right? this rabbinic political council, decreed three years of mourning, prohibitions on wearing fancy clothings, jewelry, and that no musical instrument be heard in the house of Israel, not even at weddings for a full year. So, so the, inter and the, the height of this internal documentation is in a book called Yevin Metzula. Yevin Metzula is um, written by Rabbi uh, Nathan ben Moshe Hanover. He's a very interesting character. He was a historian, a recording, or let's say a recorder, uh, Talmudist, Kabbalist, and, and a direct witness to the uprising. You want me to write his name down? Yeah, I'll write the book as well. Rabbi Nathan Hanover, the book is called Yevin Mitsula. It's a it's um a quote from Psalms, if you're familiar. With uh, its Psalms, I wrote down where it was from. Uh, it's uh, 69, line 3. I've sunk deep into the slimy uh, pit, and I find no foothold. Right? But it's also a pun, because what's this in Hebrew? Yavan. is a reference to the Greek Orthodox. Right? The, the, um, and also, of course, to the tragic events that were unfolding around him. Um, what's interesting about, about um, Given Mitsula is in many ways it is the culmination of the martyrologies that we're familiar with, that which really began in the Crusades. Ashkenazi culture, as we spoke about, I guess it was last year, right? Ashkenazi, the, the Crusades were a formative period of Ashkenazi culture. I'm not going to review it, but one of the critical tools for that sort of cultural consolidation were the martyrologies that came out of the Crusades, which elevated the rabbinic class and their willingness to die on behalf of the Torah, right? To not just die, but to kill their own children, 
to slaughter whole families, synagogues that gathered together and drew lots for who would kill who until the last man killed himself, right, in order to avoid forced conversion. These martyrologies, these descriptions of suffering became a centerpiece of Ashkenazi culture. At the time I told you guys that the Crusades are when the smile went out of Ashkenaz, right? And so the way in which Yevon Mitsula presents the events of Tachvatat, uh, of, of the Chmelnitsky massacres, as they're known in Jewish history, and not the Chmelnitsky uprising, which I was known in Ukrainian history. Um, the, uh, the way he's presented, on one hand, is a culmination. And indeed, you'll see um, the son of the Shloch, who maybe we'll speak about momentarily, describes it like this. I mean, it's just the, the, he, he doesn't get more and more. He says that it describes it as the third destruction which occurred in the year of 408 of the sixth millennium. It, which was just the same as the first and second destruction. What's he done? He compared it to the destruction of the first and second temples. Wait, wait, hang on one second. I just want to appreciate that the internal Jewish documentation and experience is that this is a destruction on par with the destruction of the first and second temples. And on one hand, Yevim Mitzulah reflects that. On the other hand, Yevim Mitzulah is subtly but profoundly undermining of the classic approach to martyrology. Because nobody chooses to die, everybody tries to run away. We know that the reality is there weren't 100,000 Jews in this area at this time. Well, we don't know, but the evidence is quite strong that there simply weren't that many Jews in this region. Furthermore, we know that the majority of Jews managed to flee westward, were not just destroyed. I mean, many of these communities that were erased reappear within 10 years. We'll speak about the, in the impact there. There's a huge historiographic debate about how many people actually died. Right? You see in the hundreds of thousands, starting with Yevim Mitzulah and onwards with the Jewish chronologies, the Ukrainian modern historians want to reduce it to hundreds, maybe thousands, for obvious reasons, because this is the birth of their national movement. Awkward in Europe when the birth of your national movement is bound up with the killing of the Jews. Um, it seems from the best evidence you're talking with tens of thousands. It's similar, those who were, to, who were together with us last year, to what happens with the Crusades. But the key is, for, for the perspective that I'm trying to bring to you, is that the absolute numbers are all but irrelevant in this. Because it's experienced by the Jews as a complete disruption, like the son of the Shalah said, on par with the first and second temple's destruction. Yeah, now John. So, so great question. Was there any forced conversion? It does not seem. And that's one of the places where not only is it not forced conversion, it, this seems to be a political uprising. Now, it's true that the Jews are targeted, but the Jews are targeted, and of course they're, they're hated because they're Jews. Well, you can't separate the economics from the, from the religion, as we said. This is medieval Jew hatred. But the economics are, are what really make the Jews the target. Likely, if the Poles were there, the Jews would have died too, but not with the same focus. And not only that, but there were recorded situations where the Poles saved their own lives by selling the Jews. Right? That the, the Poles would offer Jews refuge in a certain town, and then once the, once the Cossacks came for them, they'd strike a deal, let the Cossacks in to kill the Jews, and they would go free. I mean, there are, there are recorded incidences of horrible, horrible incidents. I don't mean to dismiss the presentation. My point is, is at this point, that the, that the story has completely overwhelmed facts on the ground. You have, a, you have an eyewitness account, which, according to the evidence available to us from population, could not have been true, but is nevertheless 
completely true to the experience of what was happening. That's a complex situation. And it leaves a deep, deep imprint on, let's say, the Jewish psyche. Because I would say that, you know, if the Crusades are when the smile went out of Ashkenaz, so then the Hellenistic massacre is when Shverzain and Yid became sort of the mantra. It's hard to be a Jew. And now it used to be that it was presented that from here on out, Polish Jewish culture is all downhill. That this is the point of decline. It simply doesn't, doesn't hold up. Not to the literary productivity which follows it, not to the evidence of the reestablishment of communities, but it, was a, it took the wind out of the sails. And, and there is a sense of depression which settles in over many of these communities. Um, is there any other details of this piece? Um, we'll come back to, to some of the other pieces later. And just to appreciate that Yevim becomes an intergenerational bestseller. It's translated into Yiddish, into German, into French, and continues to be published right up to the 19th century. It has a tremendous impact on the Jewish self-perception of their relationship to the non-Jewish world. It carries forward the martyrology narrative of the Crusades into modernity. And that's one of the reasons it's actually so important. Whether it's factually accurate or not, it establishes that sort of psychocultural relationship, if you will. Okay, that's the, the basics of Chmelnitsky. I want to touch a couple points that emerge out of it, but questions, clarifications? Okay, so one of the personalities, aside from the Rabbi Nathan Hanover, that, that um, we find in the midst of all these events is um, Rabbi David Alevi Segal, who is better known as the Taz. Look at that. Rabbi Halevi Segal. He's known as the Taz. Oops, sorry, that's a Z. Can't tell. Um, because his, his book that we'll speak about in a moment is known as the Ture Zahav. So, you know, TZ, Taz. This is a generation where people are known, you know, like in the, the Rishonim, where the Rambam, the Rashba, the Ritva, it was the acronyms of their names. Many of the acronyms are, are known by their books. It's not always true, but it's often true. You can tell the difference between one and the other, who gets known by their acronym and who gets known by their book. So, so um, I'll tell you a little bit about him, and you'll understand how he fits into our story. So the Shulchan Aruch is published, I hope you recall, in the mid to late 16th century. 1564 is the first full publication. And we spoke about how it's really a turning point in the structure and development of Jewish law, that it is the first authoritative product that basically closes the generation of the Rishonim, of the early medieval authorities, and opens the generation of the Achronim, of the later authorities, in the sense that it becomes the basis for further discussion. And, I, and we spoke at the time about the fact that it will be in Poland where the most productive development around the Shulchan Aruch occurs, what are known as the Nosei Kelim of the Shulchan Aruch. Nosei Kelim is a biblical term. Anybody know what it means? Well, it literally means carrying your vessels, but it's your armor bearer. Your Nosei Kelim is your armor bearer. And the, and the implication, I think, is, is quite profound. You have to appreciate it. The Shulchan Aruch is the warrior, and their commentaries are the, 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 the Nosei Kelim, the, the armor bearer. Meaning, on one hand, you can't paskin halacha from the Shulchan Aruch. Not anymore. Because if you don't understand what the Taz says and his contemporaries, the Shach, and other people that will mention, right, then you can't claim to know what the Shulchan Aruch is about. So really, 
The later authorities are the ones that matter, right? Except what? They are all trying to clarify what the Shulchan Aruch said, right? And, and, and this is this sort of progress of, of development which pushes forward, has a point of codification, and then the further conversation happens in reference to that codification. We saw it with the Mishnah. The Mishnah develops at a certain point. The Mishnah is codified. You get the Gemara, which is discussing in reference to the Mishnah. The Gemara gets codified. You get the Rishonim, who are discussing in relationship to the Gemara. Then the Shulchan Aruch emerges in the other legal codes with the Shulchan Aruch really at the heart. And now the conversation will continue in relation to that. You're talking about people like um, the Sefer Meir at Enaim, right? You're talking about people, just to throw you in some names you may know, the, the Levush, um, the, the Shach, who we'll mention again momentarily, right? These are the heart and soul of the halachic discourse to this day. And they almost exclusively come from this area of, of what we think of as Polish Jewry, even though it's a bit of a misnomer because Poland's a large mass at that point. So just to give you his particular story, so David Alevi Segal is born in 1586 um, in Ludmir, that's Volhania, it's one of the four lands. Um, he is, of course, son of a rabbi. His chief teacher is his older brother, Yitzchak. At a very age, young age, he becomes a well-known Talmudic scholar, and we spoke, remember, if you recall, about the growing separation between Talmudic study and legal study. Right? Nevertheless, the greats all mastered both. Um, he marries, which is the custom of the time, you married one of two people. You married either the rich man's daughter or your rabbi's daughter. So he marries the daughter of uh, Rabbi Yol Circus, who was known as the Bach, who was one of the sort of great legal minds of, of, uh, of Polish Jewry at the time. Right? He gets his, one of his first major appointments to Ostrog, in Volhnoya in 1641, and that's where he establishes his yeshiva, and here is where he also writes um, the Ture Zahav. It's published in 1646. Notice the date. Published in 1646, and um, from there on, he's known as the Taz. It's, it, the, the book has such a tremendous impact on um, sort of like the, the halachic development of its day that, that he, he becomes identified completely with it. Two years after its publication, what happens? Yeah, the Chmelnitsky massacres. He has to flee. He ends up in uh, Brod in Moravia, in Moravia, where he remains. He's not so happy there. He ends up going back to Poland. It's wandering, etc. But what's critical is that um, in the same year that he publishes the Taz, Rabbi um, Shabtai Cohen of Vilna publishes a very similar commentary known as the Sifte Cohen. It's the Shach. And, and what emerges from the fact that they get together and publish a, a version of the Shulchan Aruch with their commentaries face-to-face -face on the page. If you're familiar with the Shulchan Aruch today, with Yoridea, the section of the Shulchan Aruch that they both wrote on, you can picture in the middle is the Shulchan Aruch. On, on the, if I'm not mistaken, outside is the Shach, and the inside is the Taz. Pretty sure that that's the way it is. Um, it's been a while, but not that long. Um, and they're duking it out over the page. And that establishes the way in which the Shulchan Aruch is published to this day. And if you think that that's just an interesting bit of history, I got news for you. The impact of who makes it on the page is a tremendous assertion of authority. And that belongs to the printers, ultimately, which is why so many of these rabbis were also printers, or at least editors in printers' houses. Because if you could get your work on the page, you were made. And indeed, the Taz and the Shach do publish that and, and establish 
the pattern for many generations. He's eventually declared by the Council of the Forelands as um, the great authority of Polish Jewry, which means he has a global reach in his Torah. Um, three, day, sorry, sorry, three years before he dies, in the year um, 1667, if I'm not mistaken, yes. So, yeah, he dies three years before he dies in 16... So, in th fine, in 1664, three years before he dies in 1667, um, his, his, his two eldest sons die in a pogrom in Lemberg, which I only mention because the, the violence of the Chmielnitsky massacre was unique in its scale, but was certainly not unique in sort of its political process. Um, the Poles have reasserted, like I said, they all flee in 1648, and within 20 years, notice he's back. He's reestablished. He's got a yeshiva. The Council of the Four Lands is functioning again. Right? There is, that's why I said that this historiography, that, that this was a death blow to Polish Jewry, just doesn't bear up to the even casual glance at traditional Jewish stories, which sort of raises the question, why do the Jews look at it that way? And you, and I'll let you sit with that. Why is tragedy such an important part of our identity? Why is it that, that, the, that the Ashkenazi Jews needed an event in their history, needed is a strong word, that they, they centered on an event in their history which is comparable to the first and second destructions of the temples? Right? Parallel, closer in their day, of course, to the expulsion from Spain. Um, so three years before he dies, his sons die, and two years later he sends his remaining two sons on a very strange mission in 1666 sends them to a prison in Gallipoli. Gallipoli, on the Dardanelles. You may have heard of it. Um, there was a war there, or a battle there. Right? Gallipoli, it doesn't really matter all that much where the Dardanelles are. It's Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Um, sends them on a mission to a prison to check out whether one of the prisoners is actually the Messiah. Yes, and by the way, they come back very impressed bearing a white robe for their father, meant to be worn on the coming day of redemption, and a letter promising to avenge the wrongs done to the Jews of Poland. Signed, Shabtai Tzvi. Which brings us to the next part of our story. I mean, the Taz, he's got his own life, and there's a rich life there, but I think it needs to be understood that the, that the um, religious and intellectual life of Polish Jewry was the bread and butter of their lives. Right? This is the structure, as I pointed out to you, what, from a sociological standpoint, allowed such a flowering of the Torah in Poland, which hadn't been seen really since Babylon. Maybe you could say Spain was comparable. Spain, fine, we'll get Spain. What allowed it? Two things, you remember? Geographic concentration, lots of Jews as a critical mass, and relatively autonomous courts. Once you have that, you will get Torah on this level. Why? Because the Torah is now a lived process and not a theoretical endeavor. One of the things that's holding the Torah back today, in my humble opinion, in our country, is the fact that the people who attempt to live by its dictates most strongly are essentially social separatists. The Haredish world wants to be separate from mainstream society. The national religious world, which is also attempting to live in its own lights according to the Torah, will just as much go to the secular courts as they will go to the religious, which means the Torah remains a secondary tool for shaping society at most. Right? Not so in 17th century Poland. Right? 
the, 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 the Torah was able to shape society, which meant that real questions, real problems, real people lived real everyday life. And therefore, the way in which the masters of the Torah had to deal with it was both vast, complex, and very real. Which is why we're still, as we say, drinking from their waters today. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for such a situation today, but, but one of the ways in which I think a lot of the confusion today emerges is that, is that we picture a real integration of the Torah into our society today as a Haredi takeover. A lot of that has to do with the structure of our politics. But that's actually not what it would look like at all. It would look like what does a 21st century society that tries to live according to the Torah look like? And the answer is we don't know. Right? You just don't know. So it's an interesting question that I'll leave on the board. So 1666 is going to be another turning point in our story, but we're not there yet because if the Taz sent his remaining two sons all the way to Gallipoli to find out whether the Messiah was indeed a prisoner, then there must be a backstory there somewhere, right? He didn't just do that on a whim. So let's do it. Should we talk about Shabbat Tzvi? He sent the sons in 1666. Yeah, nice round year. Um, okay, so Shabbat Tzvi is born in the port city of Izmir in the Ottoman Empire. Today it's part of Greece. Um, like, like I said, did I say in 1626. So he's Shabbat Tzvi, born 1626. Izmir is one of those um, Shabbat Tzvi. Um, Izmir is one of the cities we spoke about that had a large urban Jewish population, right? Uh, much of it made up of conversos who had escaped both Spain during the expulsion in 1492, so they've been there for quite some time, as well as those who have gradually joined them amongst the Portuguese Hebrew nation, um, and also many European Ashkenazi Jews who were there because it's a major trading port. And so therefore, there are Dutch Jews, Ashkenazi, meaning German Jews, there are Polish Jews, separate communities within Izmir. Um, tradition has it that he was born on what day? Anybody know? Tisha B'Av. Why? Because that's when the Messiah is supposed to be born. Right? Um, his father, Mordechai Tzvi, um, was a wealthy merchant because this port was a critical port of the Ottoman Empire in the 17th century. Uh, and he had several brothers who were successful merchants, but young Shabtai was the cherished younger son who was destined to become a rabbi, right? Apparently he was quite intelligent as well as tremendously good-looking and charismatic. Um, he, he had his rabbinic training, and it seems that he was introduced to the world of the Zohar from a fairly early age. Now remember, we're talking about the relatively early 16th century, right? True that the Zohar emerges in Spain in the mid-13th century, uh, mid to late 13th century, but as we spoke about once upon a time, it remains underground. Even with the expulsion, which happens in 1492, 150 or so years later, remains underground. First of all, it's primarily in manuscript. It's not printed until, ooh, I think the first printing of the Zohar is, is mid-16th century, but don't quote me on that. Um, but really, the Zohar begins to sort of reach a larger audience through the teachings of the Arizal, Right, who was in Svat, as we spoke about not so long ago, in 1570s, 1570 to 1572. Right? And so, so Shabtai Tzvi, being in the Ottoman Empire and geographically and culturally much closer to Svat than, say, Menashe ben Israel, who you can see is his contemporary, um, 
the, he is immediately and some say overwhelmingly influenced by this mystic Torah, the, the Zohar and the Arizal coming out of Svat. Uh, so he also apparently suffers from what today we would call um, manic depression or bipolar disorder. Again, I say, I'm always a little bit leery of uh, historical psychological diagnoses, but let's just say his behavior exhibited many of the symptoms of people who suffer from bipolar disorder um, suffer from, which is what? Um, the sort of periods of profound depression alternating with heights of um, sort of ecstatic and euphoric experience and also periods of extended normalcy, which is when true sufferers of bipolar disorder often are not sort of, uh, able, uh, that's not available to them. Um, those, these events are well documented throughout his life and will, in the end of the day, play a very important role in his, the, his followers' interpretations of his actions. Um, and it seems that during his periods of ecstatic illumination that he was impelled toward what we would consider to be bizarre rituals and strange violations of particularly rabbinic law, um, what he later came to call ma'asim zarim, foreign acts. Now, zarim has a big uh, resonance within Jewish tradition because because uh, Avodah Zarah is what? Idolatry. Idolatry, right? And the relationship between the permitted and the forbidden is going to become a very important piece of Shabtai Tzvi's uh, theology, is perhaps the wrong word, of his, of his approach. We'll call it his approach for now, because he's not the theologian, as you'll see shortly. Um, but one thing kind of consistently showed through in his early age, um, and that was his desire to pronounce out loud the four-lettered name of God. It's like the big no-no. Yeah, I saw a couple people like, it's the big no-no. Um, and a, he, at a certain point, it's unclear when, began to give legitimacy to this desire by telling people around him that he was the Messiah, and they don't seem to have contradicted him. Now, that may seem a little crazy to you, but, but, but we have to remember, first of all, remember Menashe ben Israel, who's working away over in Amsterdam, is, is trying to get the Jews back into England because he just met this guy who was traveling in South America who claims to have found the hidden tribe of Reuven. Remember this story, right? That they crossed the river and said, Shema Yisrael. And everybody's excited about it. Jews, Christians, they're writing letters to Oliver Cromwell about it. So, so it may sound bizarre to us, but apparently it was a lot easier to accept in their day. Furthermore, it's important to note that there is a concept which is fairly well rooted in Jewish tradition, but begins to get uh, much more clear articulation at this point in history of what's known as Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. Right? This idea of two messiahs. If you're not familiar with it, um, the, 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 the house, the, the children of Rachel and the children of Leah are personified in Joseph and Judah. Right? And the idea that they have a rocky relationship, of course, always go, goes all the way back to the book of Breshit. But you see in mystic literature, it becomes much more common around this time period, um, that the relationship between them, as we've spoken about a couple of times, is one of reconciliation. We've talked about the book of, of Ezekiel. But what really comes out now is the, is the idea that it's a process orientation. That the, that the Messiah ben Joseph comes to pave the way for the emergence of the Moshiach ben David, of the, the Judean Redeemer. And furthermore, that perhaps in many traditions the, the, that the, uh, the Messiah, son of Joseph, is a fatal job, that he dies in the process. 
this may strike you as a little bit edgy um, and perhaps familiar in, in a Christian sort of way, but what's coming is the largest messianic upwelling that happened within Judaism since Christianity. And it will be with us for more than a hundred years. Yeah. More than a hundred years there will be the shock waves from what's about to happen. So, yeah. We're going there. We're going there. Don't worry. So, meanwhile, we're not there yet. We just have this guy who is apparently quite charismatic, a little bit ecstatic, attracted to the people around him, who has the urge to pronounce the name of God and justifies it by telling people that the Messiah. And nobody really denies him, but they do kind of keep him tamped down. Now, um, by the way, it's important to note that, that by, by the 1660s, Menashe ben Israel's book, The Hope of Israel, has been translated into seven to eight languages and has quite a circulation amongst the followers of Shabtai Tzvi. So meaning, like I said to you, and, and furthermore, the Christian world, as I mentioned with Menashe ben Israel, is convinced that the year 1666, 666 being a very significant number in the book of Revelations, is going to be a turning point in, in their book, the return of their Messiah, right? And so therefore, there's a general tension growing within Jewish and Christian society that the end is near. Um, so the add to this, the tremendous devastation of the Thirty Years' War on Central European Jewry, Jewry the ongoing persecution of the conversos and their constant search for safety, and the Chmelnitsky massacres in 1648, which is a gut punch. If it doesn't take Polish Jewry out, it certainly it's going to take some time to recover from, and you might understand a little bit more about what's about to happen. Okay, so somewhere between 1651 and 1654, right, when he's approaching in his late 20s, early 30s, um, the Shabtai sort of eccentric behavior finally drives the rabbinic authorities of Izmir to put a stop to him. Some say actually the last straw is that he was called to the Torah on Shabbat and he pronounced the divine name in the midst of his blessing. Hard to know if that's actually true, but they banish him from Izmir. Get out of town. They excommunicate him from Izmir. He moves on to Salonika, another major port city uh, stocked with Jews, and we're talking you know, over 10,000 Jews in Salonika at that point, where he quickly, once again, gathers a circle of friends and admirers. This, however, also ends in disaster when, gripped in one of his manic states, he celebrates his own wedding to a Torah scroll beneath a chuppah. Right? So, kicked out by the rabbis once again, um, he, is, he moves on to Constantinople. It's a pattern. He keeps going to the large Jewish communities where he can move in unrecognized, gather people around him. But here, too, um, he begins with these masim zarim, these strange acts. And this is the place where we first have recorded his um, blasphemous blessing, right? Blessed is he, matir ha'isurim. Now, if you're familiar, matir asurim, which is one of the blessings we say in the morning, means what? Freeze those who are bound. To be matir isurim is what? Is to permit the forbidden. Now, this is more than just a play on words. I want you to appreciate what's happening here. It's a very interesting language, by the way, the idea of mutar and asur. Mutar and asur, we usually translate as permitted and forbidden. But really, they mean 
available and bound, or free and bound. I'll put it to you this way. Is, is it permissible for a Jew to eat pig? Right? So it's, it's a sewer. Now, if you're going to do mitzvot, though, you need to eat. Right? So there's this whole philosophy that says the food you eat, you release the energy, the spiritual potential of a cow by eating that cow and doing mitzvot. So simple presentation. You hear? So there's something which is mutar, which is permitted, meaning available in the cow, which by eating it, you elevate through your religious actions. Does the same thing happen if you eat pork? Well, on one hand, it does actually give you energy. On the other hand, it's forbidden, okay, meaning the energy within it is bound. Interesting side note, by the way. Is it permissible for a non-Jew to eat pork? Of course it is. Can non-Jews do mitzvot? Yes, they can. There's a specific subset of what they can do, which is interesting, which means that there's a spiritual energy in the world that a non-Jew can release that a Jew cannot. Oh, that's a strange phenomenon. So says Shabbat Tzvi, this is the key to understanding the last phase toward redemption. We have to go where no Jew has gone before. <laughs> right? We have to go into the bound places. Oh, you call them forbidden, says Shabbat Tzvi? I call them bound. And God, he frees the bound. He frees the bound which means ultimately if he's going to free the bound, he's also going to have to permit the forbidden. Now this may sound like nonsense to you, but you know who it's really going to appeal to? If I am a Jew who was born as a Catholic and have lived my entire life inside out, so to speak, living in that forbidden place but knowing that I am permitted and looking for a way in which I can release myself from such a dilemma, this is going to make a lot of sense. Not necessarily intellectually, but in, in the heart and spiritually, he is speaking to the experience of a critical subset of Jews who happen to be stacked in the port cities of the Ottoman Empire and running much of the commercial and communication network of the Jewish world, which is going to have a big impact on what follows. So he makes it Constantinople. Here is the first place where he pronounces this blasphemous blessing, who, who, you know, Matir Isurim, which becomes his trademark. Um, you know, but he, once again, is sort of like not well received by the authority of Constantinople. And so he's forced to move on. Next stop, Jerusalem. Yeah, where else are you going to go? In 1662, Shabtai settles in Jerusalem, seemingly at first in a quiet fashion. Unlike what he does in the cities of the Ottoman Empire, it seems from the documentation that he might have just been looking for a break. In fact, it, it, the evidence that he's looking for a break um, is, um, is that he soon seeks out someone who can help him. Now, before he does that, it's about a year later, um, the community in Cairo sends to him, right? Um, or rather, actually, I have in my notes that the community of Jerusalem sends him to Cairo, he reveals himself as the Messiah in Cairo once again. And apparently he's well-received. Um, it's here in Cairo that the people of Cairo bring to him a young refugee girl from the Chnonitsky massacres who had been saved from the rubble by friendly Christians who had been wandering the ports of the Mediterranean claiming to be the bride of the Messiah. 
also apparently supporting herself through prostitution. Um, and Rob Tzvi marries this orphan girl, Sarah, in Cairo on March 31st in, in uh, 1664. And because if he's going to be the Messiah, he has to marry the bride of the Messiah, right? Which is precisely what he does in a, in a public ceremony. And he explains to his followers that this wife had been promised him in a dream by God because he, as a Messiah, was going to begin his mission by following in the footsteps of what prophet? Hosea, who marries a prostitute. Right? Um, so, the, the real turning point, though, comes when he meets Nathan of God, right? He, he, Shabbat he hears news that, that a man of God had appeared in Gaza. Someone who, like the Arizal before him, could disclose the secret root of his soul and give each person the particular tikkun, that fixing that their soul required. And it seems from the initial documentation that Shabbat went to Gaza in order to find peace, that he was suffering. These, you know, sort of manic, depressive, alternating states were, were not a source of joy to him, right? And, and so he went, hoping to find rest, but instead of curing Shabtai Tzvi of the delusion that he was the Messiah, Nathan of Gaza looks at his soul and says, nope, you're really the Messiah. Which, I mean, I guess was good news. Um, so according to the one story, they were celebrating Shavuot in Nathan of Gaza's house along with a group of rabbis, when Nathan falls into a trance and announced Shabtai Tzvi's rank, meaning he's the Messiah, in front of everyone. And that was it. That was all he needed to hear. From this point, he, looks, he doesn't look back anymore. On the 17th of Sivan, he declares himself publicly as the Messiah, sweeps the entire Jewish community of Gaza, which may sound strange today, but at the time was a major Jewish community. Gaza was a major Jewish community today, including the very significant Rabbi Yaakov Nijara, who, who is... is arguably the first major rabbinic authority to back Shabtai Tzvi, but certainly far from the last. Um, news spreads like wildfire throughout the whole area, and as you can imagine, it must, the advent of the Messiah, but as usual, gets strong opposition from the sages of Jerusalem. So a- according to the story, Shabtai Tzvi rides from Gaza, Jerusalem, by, followed by the masses, on, of course, a white horse. Right? Uh, he circles the city, which is walled at this point, seven times, and just from that fact, wins over a number of the rabbis inside who just are overwhelmed by this sight of people en masse following this glorious-looking rabbinic sort of character on the horse. Ultimately, they allow him into the city, even though um, the majority of rabbis stand, stand against him and they manage to soon banish him from the city. But this doesn't stop anything. Nathan of Gaza now declares himself to be Elijah, Right? And, and begins announcing Shabbat Tzvi as the Messiah to the world through letters. And letters play a critical role in this whole process. And who's carrying these letters? Converso merchants. Converso merchants who are, who are swept almost en masse into the enthusiasm, and that's a technical term, messianic enthusiasm, surrounding this movement. And of course, have all the fast ships and friends and relatives in every major port of the Mediterranean world. So Shabtai Tzvi, he, he sends out, sorry, sorry, Nathan of Gaza sends out um, this letter by, by um, and it has, there's two things in it. First of all, he calls for a mass movement of repentance, which will smooth the way for the coming of redemption. Now, one could be cynical about this, or one could take it seriously. And there's a big question here. Did Nathan of Gaza... It's clear that Shabbat Tzvi believed he was the Messiah, right up at least until the end, as we'll see. 
did Nathan of Gaza believe he was the Messiah? Or was Nathan of Gaza the greatest huckster that religious history has ever known? It's, it's impossible to know. It is impossible to know, and, and the, the scholars will take both sides, and people do close readings of his letters. But I'll tell you this, huckster or not, he couldn't have done a better move. Because what rabbi is going to oppose a mass movement toward repentance? You understand? The masses, just picture it. You're in shul, and someone bursts in the door and says, I have a letter from Elijah announcing that the Messiah has come. Whoa. <laughs> Everyone needs to repent and be more from. Uh, well, I'm, okay, who's going to argue with him? Furthermore, it's in an environment where, like I told you, some guy shows up from South America saying that he met the tribe of Reuven, <laughs> and everybody gets really excited. Like, we're somewhat susceptible to these stories. Right? And so the, the, it, it proves almost impossible for the mainstream rabbinic authorities to stand in his way. Wherever he's actually physically present in doing these masim zarim, so people are often able to say, no, get out of our town. But he moves on and he leaves these enthusiasts in his wake. So the letter, first of all, calls for this sort of mass movement of repentance. He proclaims the 17th of Tammuz, which, is, of course, is a fast day in the traditional Jewish calendar, as a day of joy in Hebron in Gaza, right? Um, and he begins to set out further letters um, telling of these sort of wondrous deeds of the Messiah and his prophet, right? Uh, rumors begin to swirl throughout Europe. The Ten tribes have been found, right? They're marching under the command of some saintly man of God to conquer Mecca, right? Like, you just picture, these, these letters start, start to show up in Shul. Nathan of Gaza informs the Kabbalists, that the kavanot, the sort of the, the spiritual meditations of the Rizal, are have been fulfilled and are no longer valid because all no more holy sparks were left out there except in the darkest of places. And that's the key: is that one of the backgrounds here? And, and um, God willing, yeah, I'll have time at the end just to give you like a, at least a couple of bullet points to hold. Like, how on earth did this happen? But one of the background pieces here is you remember the doctrine of the Rizal. And this idea that the world is filled with sparks and that, that a Jew, their task in the world is to fix the world by elevating these sparks through conscious actions. Well, nobody ever asked me what happens when you're done. So the answer is, well, there's one more place you can't go. The question isn't what happens when you're done. The question is what happens when you're done getting all the ones that are in the permitted places, but the world is still broken. And that's the key to his argument. Nathan of Gaza says, Come on, folks. We've been at this. The temple was destroyed 1,600 years ago. And sitting in the rebuilt state of Israel in the modern city of Jerusalem, we cannot appreciate that. We cannot appreciate that sense of 1,600 years we've been at this. You're telling me we're not done? We were exiled from our land because of our sins? What's left to repent for? We must be done, right? Ah, oh, what's holding us back? Well, there's one last stage. Those bound things, those isurim, right? We've got to let the sparks go from there, too. I mean, you hear the theology. Nothing exists without God's will, right? All the Jews in the room say. Well, where does a pig come from? Must be God's will. Oh, so there's a spark of God in the pig? Ooh, how do I get that out? How about forbidden sexual unions? How about Christianity and Islam? I mean, only that which God wills exists, right? 
You understand the dilemma? And so there's actually a very clean logic, which has roots in a lot of classic Kabbalistic thinking that he is now tapping into along with the psycho-emotional desire for redemption and a deep, at least on the part of the conversos, experience of inside out, I am them, they are us, we don't really have a clean Jewish versus other identity. And you can see why this begins to really take hold. So he says that the time of redemption has come and the new Torah is called for. A new Torah, the Torah of Mashiach, which you can pull Midrashim out that say the same thing. Right, they take, we'll talk about it when we get to the Baal Shem Tov, should we ever get there this year. Right? But, the, but you know, the Baal Shem Tov records that he had a dream at one point, that he descended to one of the lowest levels of hell. And you know who he found there? Jesus of Nazareth and Shabtai Tzvi. Now, notice, Jesus of Nazareth, Shabtai Tzvi, and the Baal Shem Tov, he descended there. What do they all have in common? The sense that the Torah as it was presented in the world was insufficient to take the world where it needed to go. Well, we know what happened with Christianity that led to, I mean, with Jesus led to Christianity. What happens with Shabtai Tzvi, if you don't know the story, remains to be told. And what happens with Baal Shem Tov? You see, there's this sense, and by the way, you can see it in Rav Kook too, that the, that the Torah of the Messiah is something completely new. And if you're going at something completely new, it means that you've got to break what's old. The only problem is, what if you're wrong? So, he then announces, in addition to these sort of abstract sort of theological assertions, um, the plan. He says, this is Nathan of Gaza describing it, Shabtai is going to take the crown from the Turkish king, the sultan, without war, and he's going to make the sultan his servant. And after four or five years, he's going to proceed to the river of Sambation, beyond which the ten tribes legendarily were exiled, and he will then marry Rebekah, the resurrected 13-year-old daughter of Moses. In the meantime, he'll put the sultan back in charge, but there's going to be war, which will lead to the birth pangs of redemption. Okay, it's a plan. Ready? And then all we need to do in the meantime is repent. Just the genius of it. I mean, on one hand, it sounds insane, right? On the other hand, what's he asking the average Jew to do? Repent. Well, okay. And now the rabbis are in a real dilemma because people are repenting. The mikvahs are full. Everybody's in shul. They're praying. They're giving tzedakah. They're fasting because the Messiah is here. Ooh, if it weren't for that last part, we'd really be quite enthusiastic about it. This is a big dilemma which begins to sweep the whole Jewish world. I'll tell you, 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 you have to appreciate. I remember when I was in yeshiva, one of our students asked uh, Rabbi Bravender um, whether, whether Chabad was like a dangerous messianic movement. It was a point at which like, like the, sort of like the Rebbe hadn't been dead so long and that sort of messianic side of the movement got off the ground. And you know what he said? He said, listen. Some guy who goes in the shul and dances ay, 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 Mashiach and gets up and goes to work on Monday is, is not a real messiness. He's like, when Shabtai Tzvi appeared in the world, people sold their homes. They set out on foot to walk to the Holy Land. Some of them believed that clouds of glory would pick them up and all they needed to do is show up in the streets. He's like, that's a real messianic movement. I want you to appreciate what's happening here, that the Jewish world is becoming consumed by the idea that redemption is not just imminent, it's now. Um, so Shabbat Tzvi is on the move because he is driven out of Jerusalem, as we said, because in the end of the days, the rabbis are able to keep a level head. Um, he passes through Aleppo through, in Syria on his way back to, um, the, the, to uh, the mainland Turkey. And here we have the first record of the appearance of what's known as Sabbatean prophecy. The description should be read. The spirit of the prophets and prophetesses have been established outside the land of Israel. 
I saw with my eyes a young student who recited biblical passages, and while speaking, he lost use of his limbs and was almost without pulse. And then he said, Shabtai Tzvi is our king and savior, the righteous teacher, crowned with most high crown. And he repeated passages of redemption and salvation, right, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on. This is ecstatic worship, right? And it begins to break out, not one, two, everywhere he goes. Crowds of people are falling to the ground and speaking in tongues, as we would call it today. You know, and, and you know, as the quote here said, as a person may lie about all things, but with a pulse, no one can deceive, right? That the, this phenomenon of prophecy becomes a very big part of the revivalist atmosphere that begins to grip all of the Mediterranean Jewry, right? In Aleppo, they, they say that they have to actually set up a separate tzedakah fund to care for all the people who gave up on their jobs in expectation of the imminent redemption. Right? Meanwhile, meanwhile Shabbat Tzvi has made his way back to Smyrna, his hometown. Um, the rabbis there had got a warning letter from Jerusalem detailing how he'd been excommunicated, but at first they don't take any moves against him. It's just when he starts the Masim Zarim again that they make an attempt, but this time they discover that it's too late. Because not only has he built momentum, but, if, but at this point, they're, they're the, the sort of broadsides, the early newspapers, not the broadsheets, sorry, not broadsides, it's a different thing. The broadsheets of, of the English, Dutch, and Italian traders who filled the port are filled with reports that the Messiah has arrived. And the Jews begin reading the non-Jewish papers as proof that indeed the Messiah has come, right? And, and things begin to snowball. The mass of believers surround Shabtai Tzvi, a deep rift in the Smyrna community develops between the believers and the, you know, those who are known as the Kofrim, the deniers, um, and, which culminates in Shabtai Tzvi proceeding at the head of a large crowd to the locked doors of the Portuguese shul, smashing them down with an axe, taking the pulpit, making a speech against the unbelieving rabbis, comparing them to unclean um, animals of the Bible, declaring himself Messiah and fixing the day of the redemption for June 18th, 1666, Motzei Shabbos, he dispatches his messengers to Constantinople. The time has come. Believe it or not, Constantinople is now swept with joy. The entire Jewish quarter apparently is dancing in the streets, and rather than seeing the storm that's coming, actually people from surrounding Turkish Jewish communities begin to flood Constantinople in the expectation that the Messiah is on the way. They say 150 prophets arose in Smyrna on that Shabbos alone. People began to just chant and, and prophecy in the streets. Um, so everything's come to a halt. And finally, Shabtai Tzvi leaves for Constantinople on December 30th, 1665, with the goal of taking the sultan's crown. Um, he's stopped on the way by a fast warship, sultan having gotten the word, and taken in chains, as we said, to this prison in Gallipoli, which he then comes to call Migdal Oz, right, his tower of strength and begins, as I said, to receive embassies from Jews all over the world. It's not a prison. It's an office. He has a secretary. He's allowed communication with the outside world. The only thing he can't do is leave. In fact, he makes the Passover sacrifice when he gets there, or not when he gets there, on April 19th, right, um, allowing people to eat the forbidden fats of the lamb and uh, pronouncing his favorite blessing, Hamatir Ha'isurim. It's a festival. People from all over Europe are sending embassies. We spoke about the Taz, whose sons come and come back and say, yeah, we might be the Messiah, right? He gave you this nice white shirt to wear when redemption comes. Um, it, just to give you a sense, the, 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 the wealthiest Jew in Amsterdam, Avram Pereira, 
and certainly a very religious man, starts giving out massive amounts of money to get people to the Holy Land, and he actually publishes a book of morals for repentant sinners in the, way, in the, in the sort of the advent of the coming redemption. Things start to break down when a Polish Kabbalist named Nehemia Hakohen shows up from Lvov to see Shabbat Tzvi as an emissary, as again, from one of the Jewish communities in Poland. Apparently things don't go well when Nehemia actually says that he's the Messiah. Nehemiah, this Kabbalist who shows up, says, well, truth is, I'm the Messiah. Maybe I'm the Messiah Ben Joseph. Things don't go well. There's a fight. And what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah turns to the guard and says, I'm ready to become a Muslim right now. Take me to the Sultan. So this Polish Kabbalist converts to Islam, goes straight to the Sultan, and says that Shabtai Tzvi is undermining the true faith, meaning Islam. So they finally bring, bring Shabtai Tzvi face to face with the Sultan, and they interrogate him. The Sultan's the interrogation is handled by the sultan's physician, who, of course, is a converted Jew. And so he knows exactly which questions to ask. Shabtai Tzvi denies having made any messianic claims, having any intent to overthrow the sultan. And after a lengthy interrogation, he's given a choice. To lose his head or to put on a turban. To put on a turban, to convert to Islam. He chooses to convert. You'd think, however, that would be the end of the story. Now, I, I want to I point out to you that this story is far from over. And the truth is, even though he himself now converts, he becomes uh, Aziz Mohammed Effendi and lives a, a pretty like, uh, insignificant life from here on out. A group of his followers in Constantinople convert to Islam with him. And to this day, they're known as the Donmeh. There is a small group of who the Muslims consider to be heretics within Istanbul who see themselves as the descendants and followers of Shabtai Tzvi. Now, but it doesn't end here. On, on the contrary, actually. This is like, you guys know Star Wars? If you strike me down now, I'll become stronger than you could even imagine. This is that moment. Shabtai Tzvi's conversion makes the actual Shabtai Tzvi irrelevant. Why? Because what's he done? He's gone all the way into the darkness. But you know who's still alive and well? Nathan of Gaza. And he's already laid the groundwork for understanding this. We don't have time for the full review, so I will check in with it, and, and we'll take it to the next level next week. But just hear this quote that he sends, Nathan Gaza sends out in one of the letters after his Messiah's conversion. The prime secret to which we're obligated by the Torah is that all of us must be anusim. We all have to be conversos before we leave exile. As it's written in the Torah, you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. It says in Devarim, you, before the redemption, you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Therefore, you know what you have to do before redemption can come? You have to become a non-Jew. And Chabtai Tzvi finished the process, says Nathan Ogaza, and redemption is indeed at hand. I mean, it, it may sound like madness, but the reality is that the movement which begins with Shabtai Tzvi not only doesn't end with him, is going to grow in momentum as the 17th century comes to a close and will continue to rock the Jewish world well into the 18th. Right? To the point where you will see its effects all the way through the rise of Hasidut, and in, in many ways it's made its imprint on modern Jewish world today. But for now, that is the very basic presentation of the story of Shabtai Tzvi. Last question. It's the Middle East. <laughs> 
No, really, I mean, like, you know. I, I can't speak to why the Sultan, I can't speak to why the Sultan allowed that happen, but I can tell you that that's the way it worked. Other questions or comments? That's no harm in ending a couple minutes early. He lived, he dies in 1676. So he lived as a Muslim for about 10 years. I do want to point out, by the way, and this we'll speak about next, but I'll leave you with this thought. If Shabtai Tzvi had chosen to die in that moment, I promise you, we would remember him as one of the great martyrs of Jewish history. Right? And, and, and because you have to appreciate, as we'll speak about next week, what allowed the Jewish world to receive him as a potential Messiah and not a madman? And in order to appreciate that, we're going to have to look at a number of pieces that we've already laid the groundwork for, but that'll happen next week. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.